I'll invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Ezra chapter 4. Ezra chapter 4. We've been studying the Gospel of Mark most of this year, and we came to the halfway point through the book. We ended chapter 8. There are eight chapters left in the Gospel of Mark. So uh, before we dive back into Mark, thought we'd spend a little time in the Old Testament book of Ezra. So we're going to walk through this relatively short book together. And uh, today we come to chapter 4. When you found that, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the father's houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah, made them afraid to build, and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabil and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rehum, the commander, Shimshai the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapper deported and settled in cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. To Artaxerxes, the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greetings. And now let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the books of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why this city was laid waste we made known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finish, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. The king sent an answer to Rehum the commander and Shimshai the scribe and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. Greeting. 
And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree and search has been made. And it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings. And that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem. Who ruled over the whole province beyond the river. To whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore make a decree that these men be made to cease. That this city not be rebuilt until a decree is made by me, and take care not to be slack in this matter, why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem, and by force and power made them cease. And the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius king of Persia. Let's pray. Our God, please open your word to us and open us to your word. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. You can be seated. Vanderlei Lima was an Olympian from Brazil who went to do what no other Brazilian had ever done. He wanted to go win a medal in the Olympic marathon event. And uh, this was a special marathon because they were going to retrace the original route of the very first marathoner, Philippides. Some of you may know the story. Well, Vanderlei was nearing the last leg of the race and he was in first place. Oh, there were a, a lot of flag-waving spectators cheering him on. and It was a wonderful thing, but some point, uh, a spectator wearing a red, white, and green kilt dashed out of the crowd and tackled Lima on the track. And in all the chaos that ensued, he lost 20 minutes, and two other runners passed him to win the gold and the silver. When the race was over, Lima said, I'm not going to cry forever about the incident, although it broke my concentration. But I did manage to finish, and the bronze medal in such a difficult marathon is also a great achievement. If you've read the Bible much, you know the Apostle Paul likens the Christian life to a race, to a marathon. And the reality is there are those who don't want us to finish. you believe that? There are those who will throw any obstacle in our path. There are those who would even tackle us on the track if they could. We need to accept the reality that as Christians, in this life, we're going to face opposition as we seek to live for Christ and as we seek to live out the mission of Christ. So how do we respond? Well, we don't, we don't just sit out on the track and quit the race. We don't spend all our time rolling around on the track, wrestling with those who would try to slow us down. What is the answer to opposition? Well, as we come to Ezra 4, you will remember, we've mentioned in the last couple of messages, the people of Judah, Jews, who had been exiled to Babylon, have now 
been allowed to return to Jerusalem after 70 years in exile to begin rebuilding the temple. And they have started the project. We saw this morning they laid the foundation and the work is going. Well, what we find when we come to Ezra chapter 4 is that there is opposition that arises. Tries to keep them from rebuilding the temple of God. And as we look carefully, we're going to see three principles that will help us to handle opposition as we pursue Christ and His mission. Just like the people of God in Ezra's day were on a mission. They were on a mission to rebuild the temple, to reestablish worship according to the Mosaic law. And opposition comes. Well, we're on a mission too. We're on a mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. They're on a mission to make Christ known, to live for His glory. And we too will face opposition and we can learn much from their situation. Here's the, here's the main idea I want to leave with you tonight. The answer to opposition is faithfulness that doesn't flinch. The answer to opposition is faithfulness that doesn't flinch, or you might say unflinching faithfulness to God. Now here's the first principle I want to show you. We see this in the first five verses of chapter 4. Faithfulness to God does not eliminate opposition. Faithfulness to God does not eliminate opposition. You see in verse 1, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building the temple. You see it calls these folk adversaries. Now who are they? Um, these are people living in what had formerly been the northern kingdom of Judah. You remember when the nation of Israel was divided, there were two tribes in the south. Judah. I said northern kingdom of Judah. I meant northern kingdom of Israel. There were two tribes in the south. Benjamin and uh, the tribe of Judah. And they made up the nation of Judah. The rest of the ten tribes went to the north and formed the kingdom of Israel. Well, the kingdom of Israel was taken into captivity long before even Judah was in the year 722 B.C. And there basically was no more kingdom of Israel. But there were people living in the land. The king of Assyria, who had taken Israel captive, imported other people to live in that land. Brought them in there, exiles from their own homes, to put them in Samaria, in Israel. And these people living there now is who the assailants are. That's who the adversaries are. They're the ones who don't want Judah to rebuild the temple. They're a mixed race people who came to be known as Samaritans. The Jews left in the land what few of them there were mixed with those who had been brought in formed a mixed race called Samaritans and they were enemies of the Jews and that's who we're talking about when we talk about adversaries. Now, you'll notice when they come, they say they want to help. You see that? Verse 2, Hey, let us help you build. We worship your God too. Well, 
Notice how the Jewish leaders responded. Verse 3. Zerubbabel, Jeshua, the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, king of Persia, commanded us. Now, this may seem a little bit like a harsh response. I mean, they want to help you. Why wouldn't you let them help? Well, on the part of the Jews, this is a, term, a determination to be faithful to God. You see, the people of Samaria worshipped the God of Israel, sort of. They had multiple religions. You might say their, their devotion to, to Yahweh was very diluted. It was not an absolute devotion. And the Jews knew that God would not want him involving such people in the worship of God's people. Israel did, did, not, um, did not need to allow pagans and false religions to remain in the land. If you remember, that's what got Israel in trouble in the first place. Because they didn't dispel all the foreigners from the land. They left the idols and the false religions and the wicked people. They left them in the promised land and it ended up causing them trouble. So they've learned a lesson. Look, we, we, we can't let people who are not truly devoted to Yahweh join in covenant with us to build the temple. Besides that, you'll notice they're called adversaries in verse 2. They're called adversaries for a reason. They don't really want to help the Jews. They don't want the temple rebuilt. They don't want to help the cause of God's people. What they want to do is frustrate it. So the Jewish leaders, while it seems like they're being harsh and telling them, no, you can't help us, what they're actually doing is demonstrating faithfulness to God in the face of opposition. But what I need you to see is that did not put an end to their problems. Verse 4, Then the people of the land, this is the adversaries, they discouraged the people of Judah, made them afraid to build, bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus the king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius king of Persia. You see the word discouraged? They discouraged them. The word discouraged literally means to sink or to let drop. Picture this, they have their hands up and their hands are to the work and now they let their hands drop. That's the idea. They lose courage. They lose heart. They lose determination to build. The adversary has made the people afraid. They have bribed the officials of Persia so that the officials will you know, cause a lot of red tape with the rebuilding and will, will frustrate the efforts to try to get the temple rebuilt. Basically, they're just causing a lot of problems and it works. You see, at, in verse 5, they frustrated their purpose. All the rest of the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, the temple was not being built. Now, I need you to think about this. For once... The people of God have shown themselves faithful to the Lord in the face of opposition. They've taken a stand. No, we're not going to mix with those who are not truly believers. We're not going to bring them in and involve them in the work of God. We're not going to take the chance of being pulled away from devotion and faithfulness to God. They're faithful. And we would hope the result of that faithfulness 
would be either one, the opposition would back down, or that God would remove them somehow. But that's not what happens. Now I said a minute ago that the answer to opposition is faithfulness that doesn't flinch. But, we would be foolish if we were not aware of and prepared for the fact that our faithfulness to Christ is not going to make opposition go away. You understand that? The way we respond to opposition, to the work of Christ, to our lifestyle in Christ, we respond by being faithful no matter what. But listen, our faithfulness is not going to make the opposition back down. It's not going to make them go away. Just because we are determined to be faithful does not mean that is going to resolve all our opposition. Matter of fact, it may cause the our faithfulness in the face of opposition may cause our enemies resolve to even go stronger. Twenty years ago, when I was living in South Louisiana, well, more than twenty years ago, thirty years ago. Um, not far from where I was serving, there was a pastor, a Baptist pastor there, who found himself in a difficult situation. The Baptist convention in Louisiana has always taken a strong opposition against gambling and against the lottery, just like our Baptists in Mississippi. Well, this pastor had a situation because this pastor had a deacon whose wife won $2 million in the lottery. Well, the church, the Baptist church in Louisiana, openly opposes the lottery. Well, she wanted to tithe her money to the church. And the pastor said, this is hypocritical. We, we, we openly oppose gambling in the lottery based on our Christian convictions. And are we going to take money from the lottery and pay off our church building? He said, this is hypocritical. We don't need to do this. By the way, I agree with him. Well, what happened? They fired him. <laughs> they wanted the money more than they wanted to be faithful to God. Listen, just because you're faithful to stand to, the, to opposition, just because you don't flinch in the face of it, doesn't mean it's going to go away. You mean being faithful to the Lord could actually cost me my job? Yes. You mean being faithful to the Lord could make the situation even more difficult? Yes. Being faithful to, to the Lord could cause my family members to despise me even more? Yes, that's exactly what I mean. How many times, think about this, how many times, it's, for instance, say a wife comes to the Lord, her and her husband were married, they were not Christians, but at some point later she becomes a Christian, and she begins to live for the Lord. She's determined to be faithful to the Lord. And the husband don't like all this Christian stuff. He's not comfortable with it. He doesn't like this change in her. And there's some hostility that begins to brew. Is her faithfulness to the Lord going to make him all of a sudden stop ridiculing her? No. Matter of fact, what caused it to start with was her faithfulness to the Lord. And he's going to do everything he can to get her to walk away from this whole Jesus thing. So we need to, we need to just accept this. 
that opposition is not going to go away just because we're faithful. Yet be faithful we must. Think about this. The reason our opposition is our opposition is because of Jesus. Think about it. The reason the world is against us in the first place is because we take a stand for Jesus. Do you think if we begin to take an even stronger stance for Jesus that that's going to make them back off? No. It's going to make them despise us even more. And there's something at the root of this problem. And here's where we come to the second principle I need you to see. The opposition sees faithfulness to God as rebellion. The opposition sees faithfulness to God as rebellion. Now, when we begin, get to verse 6. Beginning in verse 6, the story is interrupted. We are shown other examples of opposition that came later in Israel's history. I don't know if you noticed this, but at the end of verse 5, it's talking about Cyrus, the king of Persia, and then it mentions Darius, the king of Persia. So during this time, there's been a change of king. So some years have passed. Well, in the next verse, verse 6, you see it mentions the reign of Ahasuerus. Now, he's also called Xerxes. This is the king who was ruler during the days of Esther. So more years have passed. And then in verse 7, you see the mention of the king Artaxerxes. This is another king. So some time is passing during what's happening in this story. Some years are going on, and all during these years, the temple is not being rebuilt. Well, when we come to verse 7, the, the people are... They've been hitting a little at the temple, working on a little bit here and a little bit there, but because of fear, they haven't been working on it like they should. Well, when we come to verse 7, their adversaries write a letter to the current king of, a, of Media, Persia, Artaxerxes. And the letter is written, we read it in verses 11 through 16. The letter is basically uh, an effort to get the king to force them to stop all work on the temple. They tell the king that these Jews are rebellious and this is a rebellious, wicked city. Do you see that in verse 12? Be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They tell the king that these Jews are rebelling against you and they say, their rebellion is going to have two consequences. One, they're going to stop paying taxes. The king is going to lose revenue. You see that in verse 13. Two, it will shame and dishonor the king. Verse 14. Right? We don't want to witness the king's dishonor. And then they tell him that he will have no possession in the Province beyond the river, if you let these Jews rebuild this temple. The province beyond the river is a reference to the whole land of Palestine and Israel across the Jordan River. And look, if you let them rebuild, you're going to lose your territory over here. You're going to be dishonored. You're going to lose all your revenue. 
They wanted the king to believe that if the walls and the temple of the city were rebuilt, there would be nothing left for the king in that part of his kingdom. Now, obviously that's a huge exaggeration, but it doesn't matter. What they're saying is, listen, these Jews are rebels against you. They're rebels against the king, and you better stop them. James Hamilton said this, It is increasingly clear in our culture that worldly people regard faithfulness to God as rebellion. In reality, think about this with me. In reality, those who are rebels are those who are non-Christians. They are rebelling against God and God's rightful authority. But, our society doesn't see those who are against God as the rebels. No. They see those of us who stand for Christ as rebels. Why? Why are Christians in our world viewed as rebels against society? Here's why. Because we don't accept the philosophies and practices of society at large. We don't go along with popular opinion. We don't accept what the norm of the day has become. Our faithfulness to Christ causes us to take a stance that is against most of society, and because of that, society views us as troublemakers and rebels. It's the same thing for the Apostle Paul. The Jewish authorities arrested the Apostle Paul, and they brought him to trial before the Roman governor Felix. And, and listen to what they said in Acts 24, verses 4-8. through 8. But to detain you no further, I beg of you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything which we accuse him. See what they're doing? They're just saying, look, he's a troublemaker, he's a rebel. Well, that's what they did in Ezra's day. That's what they did in Paul's day. That's still what they do. They paint those of us who are faithful to Christ as rebels against society. And those who have worldly values and worldly beliefs and worldly philosophies, they never consider the possibility that they might actually be the ones who are in rebellion. We are rebels because we stand against abortion. We are rebels because we won't support homosexual marriage. They see us as a threat. They label us as troublemakers because we fight to keep God from being systematically removed from American society. Because of that, we're troublemakers. Just a few years ago, it was reported that North Korea executed 80 people for owning a Bible. Listen, the godless in the world have always viewed the godly as a threat to society. Troublemakers and rebellion. What's the answer to opposition? Look, the answer to opposition is faithfulness that doesn't flinch. But it's critical that we understand that it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cause us to be labeled rebels and troublemakers. So the first thing we've seen is 
that our faithfulness, our unflinching faithfulness, is not going to make our opposition back down. It's going to cause them to label us troublemakers and rebels in society. But there's another principle we need to see in this chapter, and it's, it's, it's what's so key for us as we think about facing opposition. Here's the third principle. Faithfulness is trusting God to overcome opposition. What we see when you come to verses 17 through 22 is the king's response. Remember the enemies of the Jews wrote the king a letter to try to get him to stop this building of the temple. Well, in verses 17 to 22, we see what the letter to the king, the letter from the king said. He said, you know what? I think you guys are right. I think these Jews need to be stopped. Look at verse 23. Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai the scribe, their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. They stopped the work of the temple officially. The rebuilding of Jerusalem was halted. And then when you come to verse 24, you're right back where we were at verse 5. Right? The, frust the, the purpose of the people had been frustrated and the building stopped. At first glance, this is disturbing because it seems like the opposition is succeeding. How can the opposition oppose God's people and succeed? Especially when God's people for once were trying to be faithful to Him. Well, the answer is simple. They didn't succeed. They didn't. They didn't stop God's work. The most important word in this entire chapter is found in verse 24. Look at it with me. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. They stopped the work until Darius became king. You also saw that in verse 5. Did you see it? They bribed counselors against the Jews to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus the king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius king of Persia. Yeah, the work on the temple, the house of God, was stopped until, until. Listen, here's what we know from history. The temple did get built. The second temple which came to be known as Herod's temple, the temple was finished. What God had promised did come to pass. Their faithfulness was not in vain. It wasn't for nothing. Them standing up to opposition, being faithful to God in the face of it, did not turn out to be a waste of their time and effort and energy and courage. No. Here's what I want you to see. This is important. It wasn't the people who overcame the opposition. It was the divine work of God. Listen, it wasn't by the people's might or wisdom 
that they were able to resume the work. It was by the sovereign providential hand of God. It was God working behind the scenes, orchestrating and manipulating rulers and events and kingdoms and nations to bring it all together so that He could resume the work and bring it to pass exactly when and how He planned. It was the divine work of God. Listen, here's what I want you to see. Our job as followers of Christ is to be faithful. It's God's job to overcome the opposition. Do you catch that? Our job is to be faithful without flinching. That's our responsibility. It's God's responsibility to overcome temptation. We're told to love our enemies, aren't we? Aren't we? And pray for them. Try to teach them the gospel if we can. We, listen, we trust God to deal out whatever retribution is deserved. Right? Whatever score there is to be settled with those who oppose us, we let God settle that. Whatever obstacles need to be removed, we let God remove those. Your job, believer, is to be faithful. Think about King David. You remember? David had been anointed the next king, but Saul was officially still the king, and Saul was chasing David all over the place trying to kill him. And twice David had the opportunity to kill Saul, who was trying to kill him, but did he do it? I'll not set my hand on the Lord's anointed. The one God is making, I'm not going to touch him. What he, David was, when God's ready for him to be out of the way, God will remove him. That's the way we are. When God is ready to deal with the opposition, he will. I want you to think about this. Imagine you have two boys. You've told one of these boys, he's got a lot of homework, so you tell him, look, I want you to go do your homework. Well, the other brother... Keeps irritating him. He hits him on the head with a Nerf football. He squirts him with a water gun. He won't stop talking to him. He's making it awful hard for his brother to do his homework. Now, what would you want your son to do so that he could finish his homework? Would you want him to punch his brother in the teeth? Say, leave me alone. Or would you rather him just come tell you you told me to do my homework. I can't. He won't leave me alone. Would you rather him tell you and let you handle it? Or do you, would you rather him just punch his brother in the teeth? Kick him in the groin and be done with it? What would you rather? Well, if you're a good parent, you would rather him come to you and let you handle it. Look, you just be faithful to do what I told you to do. You let me handle him, right? That's the way God is. I know you got opposition. This is what God would say to us. I know you have opposition. I know there are people against you. I know they make it hard to do the work. I know they make it hard to be faithful. Look, you just focus on faithfulness. You come to me and say, God, here's this opposition. It's hard and they're hurting. We need your help. You come to me. You tell me about it and you leave it with me. And you just focus on faithfulness. You focus on faithfulness. Listen, Christ is our strength. Christ is our defender. He is our refuge. He is our strong tower. 
as we said this morning, He is our safe place. We focus sometimes too much on the obstacles, too much on the opposition, and not enough on Christ. We're looking at the problem so hard, we don't look at the solution. We worry about the possibility of persecution, and what are we going to do if we get persecuted? We get all wrapped up in the people and the situations that might cause us problems, might ridicule us for our faith. Instead, what we should be focused on is just living for Christ, drawing near to Christ. Being faithful to Christ. Listen, our job, believers, is to discern what, what is our responsibility to be faithful to Jesus. What do I have to do to be faithful to the Lord? What do I have to do to focus on doing what He has put me here to do? That's my responsibility, faithfulness. Faithfulness. That's my responsibility. Instead, Sometimes we focus on the people who would ridicule us. We focus on what we can do to avoid opposition. Instead, we ought to just focus on living for Jesus. It's not our task to deal with our opposition. My job is to discern what I must do to be faithful to Christ and just focus on doing that. So I said the answer to opposition is faithfulness that doesn't flinch. Faithfulness to Christ, what does that mean? It means this. It means you focus on what pleases Christ. You focus on what honors Christ. And you trust Him to deal with the opposition. You focus on what makes Christ happy. Do what pleases Him. Do what honors God. The answer to opposition is not to attack the opposition. You do get that. It is to do what Christ would have us to do. What if our government tries to force us to perform homosexual marriages? We respectfully refuse. What if we're told we can no longer share our faith in public places? we respectfully refuse to obey and we continue to share our faith. What if the Bible is made off limits like it is in many places in the world? Do we surrender our Bibles? Absolutely not. I will surrender my guns long before I give up my Bible. Because my guns are not my protection. My Lord is my protection. The answer to opposition is faithfulness that doesn't flinch. So if your religious beliefs cause family members to ridicule you, don't back off from your faithfulness just so people won't ridicule you or give you a hard time. If in your work circles... You are ridiculed because of your faithfulness to God because you don't go along with the beliefs and opinions of the world. Listen, don't flinch in the face of ridicule. Stand fast. Stand fast. Regardless of what's happening around us, when the enemy attacks, we stay the course. We stay the course. We stay faithful to what God has given us to do. We continue to wait and we continue to work and we continue to worship faithfully. 
trusting the Lord to deal with the opposition. Let's pray.